0: Good morning. Can you hear me all right? It's good to see you all here this morning. Uh, If you don't know who I am, my name is Tanner. I am the junior high pastor here at the church, and I'm going to be carrying on our Advent messages today. So last week we began, Pastor Dan started us off talking about love. This week, hope. Next week, joy. And then the final week of Advent is peace. Peace. Okay, and one little plug, Dan talked about these invites. Make sure you go grab a couple of these. We've got a whole bunch of them. Grab them, give them to your friends, coworkers, anybody who will take them, even if they're not willing to take it, just like force them to take it. We want people to know that we are available to be joined for Christmas Eve, and so we want as many people as possible to join us. So... Hope is our topic for today. Real easy, real simple, you know, surface level stuff is hope. Just like all these other topics, uh, these topics are chosen and and talked about across all of Christianity. And more than likely, there are a lot of uh, churches today all over the world talking about the same topic. And so I'm excited to talk about hope because it's necessary. It's what the season brings. It's something that I am excited to talk with you all about. But I'm going to start in kind of a risky way, okay? Letting you know this, that I'm going to start by paraphrasing a couple stories I read recently that are really sad, but I think they'll help us all get on the same page with this topic of hope and the necessity of hope in our lives. So I'm warning you, this is a risk at the beginning to talk about something sad when we're talking about hope, but here's here it goes, okay? Uh, there's a book uh, by a man named Viktor Frankl, and if that name rings a bell for you, you probably know the book I'm going to refer to this morning. Uh, it's called A Man's Search for Meaning. Really good book. I would encourage you to read it, but know that it's sad. It has a lot of sad stories, and it's because Frankl lived through the Holocaust. He was a Jewish man. Uh, a doctor of psychology, and so he, he spent three years at four different concentration camps during World War II, and so it's sad, sad stories. He, he doesn't leave uh, a lot out from, he, uh, obviously you would have tons of memories over that span of time and all the things that you see, and he's clear about you know, talks about stories of people he knew and the things that he saw, and it's a really tough book to read, but uh, actually considered one of the most like influential books ever written because it's so—it's uh, just good. It's good to learn about those things and see uh, what he has to say about them, and in the title hearkens uh, to what the point of the book is. He he points to a need that all humans have, okay? We all need some sort of meaning. And ultimately, what he talks about is that we need something to hope for, okay? So there's a couple stories that he wrote uh, that I want to just again paraphrase to you so that we can get on the same page with this the first one uh, prefacing it uh, he is a doctor okay he's technically not a medical doctor but because he could tell uh, the prison guards that he is a doctor he got some special privileges opportunities though it didn't help him all that much because he still had to go through a lot of things. But So he's a doctor. He has the opportunity to basically do the job that he did before, which was largely in suicide prevention. That was like his specialty before uh, World War II. So he's a doctor, and he works with the other doctors. They try to treat people as best they can and things like that, and him and the other doctors notice something funny, not funny, bad, but peculiar that happened uh, during one stretch of time. So from Hanukkah, again, he's a Jewish man, Hanukkah slash time to New Year's from 1944 to 1945, him and the other doctors realize that there is a dramatic spike in the deaths in their camp. After the fact, after the war was over, they actually went back and asked people who survived the other camps too, and the same thing happened in a lot of other camps as well. And it wasn't that the weather was worse, it wasn't that the treatment was worse, these deaths weren't uh, person killing a person deaths, these were just deaths, okay? And the food wasn't worse, it wasn't some, there was no real evidence as to why these people should have been dying in such higher rates for that week. And so Frankel and the other doctors, they they tried to make their best guess at what was causing it. And what they concluded was that in the hearts of many of those people who passed away, there had been some secret hidden away hope that by that time of year, they would have been home. Or maybe not that they would even be home at around the table with their friends and family, but just that so they would be free, right? Wouldn't you kind of imagine that that would be something that you would go through too? Like if you had been months in a prison camp and you're needing something to hope for, maybe that would be a good time of year to assume that that kind of stuff would happen. Something good might happen by then is what they concluded. And so, of course, these people are malnourished, overworked, uh, there's disease that runs rampant through these camps and so on the surface it looks like they're just it's a lot of people dying but him and the other doctors the ones who would be able to notice like something something different's going on here that was their explanation it's a sad story to realize that even if you don't believe, even if you think you're hearing me talk and you're like, yeah, that's a bunch of mumbo-jumbo, here's, here's what confirmed it for Frankel, because I kind of thought the same thing, probably just happenstance, probably just rough time of year, you know, we have sickness that goes around even still today at that time of year. Here's what confirmed that suspicion for Frankel, though. On a more personal level, he knew a man in one of the camps who he had become fairly good friends with, and as good of friends as you can in that scenario. And that man made it through that winter time, but he confided in Frankl, who is a psychologist. He, th- he offered basically therapy to the people that he was in camp with. He confided in Frankl that he had had a dream. And in his dream, there was just some voice that spoke to him that by this certain date in March, I can't remember what the exact date, date was, but the voice told him by this date, you're going to be free. You're going to be out of here. You're going to be okay. You're going to get to see your family and all that stuff. And this guy, he believed it. He took it as gospel. He put his whole faith and whole, his whole hope in that voice, whatever it was in his head, in his dream as truth and what Frankel saw was very unfortunate. That day came and went and the very next day the man passed away. So his suspicions were confirmed. Of course this man is a psychologist and he has a different view of the world and all that stuff. So Chew the meat, spit out the bones, but I think there's something to this, don't you think so? That when people lose their hope, there's something about your ability to fight things off and your ability to go through hard times gets gets weakened. So on the surface, that man, his symptoms said he died of typhus, which was actually the same disease Frankel's wife died of. So this man dies of typhus, but Frankel knew the story. He knew what that guy had said. He knew that the day before, that guy assumed he'd be at home or he'd be free or something like that. So bringing it to today, bringing it to Christmas, bringing it to Jesus, I, I don't have a fear that uh, you all are going to be so disappointed by something, have a hope crushed so badly that you're going to succumb to it in death or something like that. That's I hope that won't happen to you all. What my Fear, though, is as a pastor and as a person of faith is that we as Christians who should be really hopeful people might have already or might begin to learn to live with a hope deficiency in our lives, okay? Learn to live with just a low level of hope or having hope sometimes, but it's kind of a wishy-washy type of hope. That's my fear. And so this morning we're going to talk about hope, where it comes from, where it should come from, and everything in between. So what I'd like to do before we hop into the scripture is define hope for you in two ways. First is what I would call worldly hope, which is hope, uh, this is how I define it. It's the expectation of future good based upon luck or merit or simple human progress, okay? So based upon luck would be, man, I really hope I win the lottery, right? Man, I really hope something just falls into my lap that is good. That's that's the way that we operate sometimes. We just hope that something good will happen, and we're just basing it totally on me getting lucky and something good happens, right? How about merit? L- hope based upon merit would be, I hope I get that promotion. I hope I get that new job. I feel as though... I've earned it. That would be worldly hope that is based in your merit. You're doing something. You're accomplishing something. And then lastly would be progress. This is a real uh, hope uh, in progress that I have. Is that, and parents, you can confirm or deny it for me. Please just confirm it though. That as my son gets older, he will just sleep like a baby all the time. Like that that phrase I've learned is a bad phrase because sometimes he's doing good, sometimes he's not, and it's always when I don't want him to that he's doing bad. Do you know what I mean? So I'm hoping as he gets older, it gets better, right? Parents, please nod your head. Okay, thanks. So that's a that's a hope that I have that's just based on my son getting older. Maybe you have a similar hope for a relationship that as you and your friend or as you and your spouse get older, you'll mature past that one issue you have. Or maybe you on an individual level hope That as you age and mature, you will stop dealing with that sin that started when in your teens or your twenties or your thirties or whatever it was. We just hope that once I get a little older, once we get a little further down the road, it'll get better. So that's worldly hope. And I compare that, I want to compare that this morning with what I think we need more of, which is Christian hope. Okay. That's the expectation of future good based upon Jesus and his promises a much more sturdy kind of hope for an illustration. This is not my original illustration, but it's so good. Uh, Imagine you're hanging something on a wall. If you're going to hang something on a wall, say just a picture frame, you can just tap a nail into the drywall, put the picture up there, everything's fine, right? Because it's just a picture frame, it'll hold it. So bringing that analogy into real life. You are like the nail, and the weight of the picture is like the weight of life. So when life is good, when life is light, you could say, it's okay for you to hope in something that's not that strong, right? It's okay for you to hope in, I might get lucky and something will happen. I might I might earn some way uh, good in my future, or I might just get good in my future because I am growing up and I'm, things are getting better. You know what I mean? So so when life is light, it can handle that. Those kind of hopes can bear that weight of life. But when life gets heavy, as soon as you put something too heavy for that nail, it's going to rip through the drywall and it won't be able to hold it. And so we compare that with Christian hope, which is like what you usually do when you hang something heavy on the wall, which is what? You tap the nail or the screw into a stud. You need something behind you that can provide you with the strength to get through the hard times, that can bear the weight of difficulty. So that's a good illustration to keep in your mind today. So Christian hope. It's like nailing nailing yourself into the stud, screwing yourself into the stud. It's the expectation of future good based upon Jesus. And Jesus is what provides that stability. So today what we're going to look at is who is Jesus and what are his assurances, what are his promises to me? Because if that's who we're supposed to hope in, what are those things that he promises me? Because Christian hope isn't just Optimism, and it isn't just positive thinking. It isn't just everything's going to be okay just because. It's everything's going to be okay in my spirit because Jesus did X, Y, and Z. And we can go down a list forever and ever of all the things he did. So, what what can we look at that would give us hope we're going to look at today uh, a prophecy that gave hope to the people of God hundreds and hundreds of years ago and look at how it kind of applies to us it actually literally applies to us today and we'll show you why here in just a minute okay so today your sermon is kind of a choose your own adventure one do you like do you guys remember those books ever okay so we you can go in your scripture either to Isaiah 42 or I'm going to be in Matthew chapter twelve. You'll see why in a little bit. They're the same basic scripture actually. So I'm gonna be in Matthew because I like thinking about the prophecy in terms of Jesus fulfilling it. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time is Jesus coming to fulfill all these things that were spoken hundreds of years before he even was born. That's, that's part of the wonder of Christmas, is that this man, this baby who was born, fulfilled prophecies that were spoken 700 plus years before he was ever born, and he walked this earth and he fulfilled every single one of them. It's a crazy thing to think about. So I'm in Matthew chapter 12. Context for Matthew. If you're in Isaiah, you'll be fine. You can just uh, take this information as it comes. So in Matthew... Jesus has been on a bit of a law-breaking streak, okay? And it's not that he's breaking laws. As Jesus said, he came to fulfill the laws. But in the eyes of the Pharisees, he's Breaking laws. He went and walked through a field with his disciples on the Sabbath when you weren't supposed to work, and they picked heads of the grain and ate them, and that was unlawful in the eyes of the Pharisees. And then he takes it a step further and walks into the synagogue, and there's a man with a shriveled hand, and he heals him on the Sabbath as well. And the Pharisees, they were okay if someone was like on death's door with healing them on the Sabbath, so even the Pharisees are kind of okay breaking their own rules, you know. But because Jesus healed this man who it wasn't all that serious of a thing. He just had a shriveled hand. Because Jesus did that, they weren't very happy. And in fact, they plotted to kill Jesus. That is what the verse, chapter 12, 14, before the verses we're going to read today says. It says, but the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Because Jesus did two things that he's not allowed to do. Only one certain person would be allowed to do these kind of things. God. Only God would be able to break or fulfill his law, right? And so Jesus did those things, and they are looking at him like, you aren't the Messiah, but Jesus has another thing. And Matthew, as the narrator of this story, has another idea in his mind as well. So the Gospels are interlaced between dialogue, Jesus talking, and then there are parts where the narrator, the writer of the book, kind of zooms out. It's like those scenes in movies where they zoom out, and you get some context that helps you understand what's going on. So Jesus just breaks the, breaks the Sabbath law two times in a row, and then he withdraws, and this is where Matthew chimes in, and he says, okay, here's what you need to see. Here's what you need to see about the story of Jesus in this moment, and he is going to quote. Isaiah 42, the first five verses, and that's what he's going to use to prove that it's okay that Jesus did all this stuff, okay? We're going to read verses 15 and 16 in Matthew 12. It says this, uh, the Pharisees have just said they're going to plot to kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place, and a large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. So, when Jesus' presence drew a lot of attention, it was kind of his habit until uh, the final time he went to Jerusalem to withdraw. He, He knew the balance that the Messiah had to strike between confrontation with the Pharisees, confrontation with the people who were so stuck to the law and uh, keeping the peace. He he had a level of peacekeeping ability that he knew he had to do, and so he withdraws. That's something that we see him do a number of times, and like many other times, the people who just saw him heal the man with the shriveled hand are like, I kind of want to go with this guy. I don't want to stay here in the synagogue. I want to go with that guy who just healed the guy's hand, because I might have something that I need healed as well, and so many people followed him out to wherever he went, and He goes and he heals them all, it says, but he asks them not to spread the word any further. And if if you're like me, sometimes you hear that or read that part when Jesus is always telling people, don't tell anybody about this. It's kind of weird to me. We'll talk about it as we go. We'll get some help from the following verses today, okay? So 17 and 18 say this. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nation. So here is why Jesus did what he did. To fulfill what Isaiah said about the Messiah. Jesus is coming, and he's showing himself as the Messiah. Everything he's doing is to show, I'm fulfilling what all that God spoke. So here is the zoom out moment, and this is where Matthew, if you can imagine it like a movie, Matthew as the narrator says, you know 700 years ago when Isaiah wrote this little thing about the Messiah? Jesus is doing those things right now as you're watching it. It's kind of cool to think about it that way, and the first thing that Isaiah said sounds a lot like what God the Father said to Jesus after he was baptized, right? Here's my servant whom I have chosen, the one in The one I love in whom I delight. Sounds a lot like the blessing the Father gave to Jesus at his baptism as well. And so fulfillment of prophecy. He is the one. This is the guy that was spoken of. This was the guy who gave hope to the people of God hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Here he is. He's on the scene. He is here with us now. And here is what he does. He possesses God's spirit, and he proclaims justice. And that word justice, it might be judgment in your in your uh, translation of the Bible. Here's what one commentator said for that word. It can be translated justice or judgment, which to me, in my head, those kind of contrast one another. Here's a good way to think about it. It's the law, the will, and the counsel of God concerning man's salvation, okay? So it is justice. It is when the bad is punished and the good is rewarded, but it's also judgment, which is good truth spoken to people about what God is going to do when he weighs the balance of each of our lives, that he knows how to judge us well. He knows how to judge each and every one of us by our heart and all that we've done. So he possesses the Spirit, That's shown in his ability to heal all these people. Every time Jesus performs a miracle, it's a showing of his possession of God's Holy Spirit. It's the power of God's Holy Spirit working through him. So Jesus possesses the Spirit. I will put my Spirit on him, is what the prophecy says. Jesus is here healing person after person after person miracle after miracle after miracle, and all of them, it's spoken that he was doing this to fulfill what was spoken before, and that's proof of the kingdom of God coming onto the scene. That is what Jesus came to do. So he has the spirit, and then he also proclaims justice. I'm going to flip to uh, Luke chapter 4 for a moment, just reminding you that justice and judgment, those, those words are basically the same. Luke chapter 4, 16 through 21. Here's Jesus first coming onto the scene in Luke's gospel. Kind of a bold move by Jesus. His proclamation of justice slash judgment started off his ministry like this, okay? Luke 16. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Isaiah, once again, kind of neat. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. So here's Jesus quoting Isaiah, but he's saying these words The Spirit of the Lord is on me. The Spirit is on him. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor those are proclamations of justice and judgment and then Jesus he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant and sat down it's kind of a one of those mic drop moments that you've heard of right big time mic drop moment for Jesus the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him Because they realized what he just said. And then he verbalizes what they're all thinking. He says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Meaning, I'm the one who's going to bring this sort of justice. Really bold claim. Because Jesus is claiming he is the Messiah. He is the one, once again, that Isaiah wrote about. All the other prophets wrote about. That was a piece, a little piece of evidence of hope meant to be spoken to the people of Israel, and Jesus is going, you know, that person that gave you hope all those years ago, I'm here. This is fulfilled in your hearing today. I am the guy that's going to do this, and he takes it. Uh, Isaiah pushes this a step further, and Matthew includes this in his quotation, the last part of verse 18, and he will proclaim justice to the nations, okay? to the nations means not just to the Jewish people who came to the synagogue and worship God in the synagogue he's going to proclaim that justice that kind of setting the captives free uh, getting the sight back to the blind all of those things to everyone his 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 target is much wider than was once expected and so jesus doesn't just claim to be the messiah but he's claiming to be the messiah for not just the jewish people but for everyone so from these verses we're starting we're hopefully starting to see that we are if we're going to hope in something we might as well and we should and we should rightly hope in the Messiah, the one that was talked about so long ago, that was prophesied about, that Jesus is now showing himself as the fulfillment of all of it. We should hope in him. Let's go to verses 19 through 21. It says this, he will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he has brought justice through To victory. In his name the nations will put their hope. So, starting out, verse 19 Jesus' method for being the Messiah is not a loud or showy one. I I like to say Jesus is horrible at PR. He's like, I'm going to heal you, but don't tell a person about it, right? Seems opposite to us, but that was how the Messiah was meant to act. That is fulfilling what Isaiah said about what he would be like. He's not going to be the ostentatious type of person that even the Jews probably believe They would read that Prophecy, but they would still kind of think, "I kind of want a guy who like knows he's a big deal." You know, that wasn't what the Messiah was going to be like. And Jesus knew it, and Matthew knows it, and that's why he quotes this prophecy once again. His method is quiet, it's meek, it's gentle, it's it's intentional, and so we go down to get a further description of what the Messiah is like in. 20 this is a verse that you hear uh, our pastors quote quite a bit because it's helpful for us to see what the Messiah is supposed to be like he's not loud and showy and here's also what he's like he's not it's not in his nature nature to crush and dishearten his people a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. So quickly, bruised reed is just a reed itself, even not a a bruised one, is a symbol of weakness in the Bible. And so a bruised one is just weakness. So think about those people who came to be healed by Jesus. Those people were weak in some way, and today we think about ourselves having weakness. Hopefully we realize that we have weaknesses. We are broken people as well. We have brokenness within us that we have caused some of it, and some of it we haven't caused. Some of it is the sin that runs throughout our world that hurts us all, and a smoldering wick is sort of like a waning desire for salvation. It's a losing of your hope. And so what is Jesus like? What is the Messiah like, rather? He's not the kind of Messiah who sees a broken reed and snaps it off, and he's not the kind of Messiah who sees a wick uh, of a candle that's about to go out and pinches it off and cuts it off. That's not what he is like. So Matthew's pointing to these attributes of the Messiah that Isaiah prophesied and makes the right judgment that Jesus is the one who fulfills. This. He's the only one who fits all of these things. He's the one with the spirit, right? He's the one proclaiming justice. He's the one who doesn't cry out in the street. He doesn't do this. He doesn't do that. He doesn't snuff out the smoldering wick. That is what the Messiah is like. And so Jesus is the only guy who can go straight from a law breaking streak, breaking the Sabbath two times to I'm going to leave and I'm going to heal people. I'm going to be gentle. I'm going to show you what the Messiah is like. I'm going to have my conduct like the messiah is supposed to be according to what isaiah said he's the only one who comes along who actually provides good news for the poor freedom for the captives sight for the blind and liberty for the oppressed he's the only one so what's the conclusion we need to hope in this guy This is the one person that we're supposed to hope in. This is the one person who can bear the weight of our hope for life and difficulty and everything in between just very quickly. In Isaiah, you probably if you're in Isaiah, you probably saw that I skipped a line. I didn't actually do it. Matthew did it, okay? Matthew Matthew leaves that a line, but I think it's important to note. So for you, those of you who chose the journey to Isaiah, you get a little bonus here. He, he adds a line in between 20 and 21 that says, and, and he, speaking of the Messiah, will not falter or be discouraged, those words, fault, the falter word is the same word that ta- that is talked about about the bruised reed. So, so where we have weakness, where we have brokenness, the Messiah will have none of that. And where we have a discouraged heart sometimes, like the w- losing of hope of the wick, the Messiah will not have that. He is able to be stronger than us. He is able to overcome. I think that's an important thing to note. So hope in Jesus is what's necessary. The conclusion of this quotation is the logical landing place then. This is the last verse that we'll read this morning, and it's important that we uh, get the whole picture, okay? In his name the nations will put their hope. In his name the nations will put their hope. He is the one in whom we ought to put our whole hope. That is what Matthew is saying. That is what Isaiah was saying 700 years before. The nations, which is again everyone, ought to put their hope in the one that can be a servant, has the Spirit of God upon him, proclaims justice and judgment at the same time, and yet he doesn't make a show of himself. He's kind and gentle and intentional, and he brings justice through to victory. That is what it concludes with. He's not going to act in the ways that we might like the Messiah to act, but he's going to act in the way that he is meant to act. He is the Messiah. And so the conclusion is hope in this guy who does this stuff, and it's only Jesus. A couple closing thoughts for you this morning. The uh, word in Hebrew for hope is also used to say the word Wait. Which, don't you hate that? Like, I kind of hate that a lot. Like, that hoping and waiting, are they're the same thing. Because if you're anything like me, and you're just a human, you hate waiting normally, right? Like, we just don't like to have to wait for things. But here's, here's what I would say we can take away. We're going to have to wait in this life, but we don't necessarily have to hope. We are going to have to wait, but we don't necessarily have to hope. So here is my suggestion. Learn, learn to hope learn to wait. Learn to wait and hope in Jesus, though. Not in your own luck, not in your own merit, not in things are going to get better as time goes by. Hope in Jesus instead. The, the picture that you can think about is Noah as he's waiting for the flood waters to subside. What does he do? He waits, and he sends out the raven, and he waits, and then he sends out the dove, and he waits, and he sends out the dove once again, and he waits, and then God just provides him that little piece of hope, right? one little branch, and that had to be enough for Noah to go, okay, I know God promised he was going to take care of me way back when, hundreds of days ago, but the flood is still here, but he just gave me this piece of hope. Well, every time that it says that Noah waited the week between sending the birds, it's the same word. It's Noah hoped for seven days. It doesn't translate it that way, but you could think about it that way. So what do we do? We, you and I, need to learn to take those little evidences of hope and tuck them away in our hearts. Maybe it's, hopefully, some scripture, some prophecies about Jesus, about how he's going to come once again someday. He's going to. We're celebrating the first advent right now, but there's going to be a second advent that we're in right now, anticipating his second coming. Second thing that we can see is that I think what the Messiah comes to tell us is that it doesn't matter how deep the spiritual hole you've dug yourself in in this life is. There's still hope because it's not hope based upon you figuring out how to get out. It's hope based upon the person of Jesus and his promises that is the hope that you can still have. Because I don't know, maybe you're like me, and thinking about these people who followed Jesus out to wherever he went to be healed, if I was one of those people in need of being healed, I probably would have been walking up the line, you know, if they had a single file line type of thing. I probably would have been moving my way up the line and thinking, you know, I saw him just heal that person, that person, that person, that person, but I don't know. And once I get up there, it probably won't work for me. That's kind of how we think from time to time. But Jesus wants us to hope in him. When we hope in him, he is going to come through. There's nothing that he asks us to hope in, to do with him that he will not follow through on. And so Jesus doesn't offer us just a chance at forgiveness, chance at healing, chance at a new life, but an opportunity. That's what he offers us. If you're the broken reed, if you're the smoldering wick, you have hope because it's based in him. Final thought, hope is possible now. I would would recommend we learn to hope. Once again, learn to wait, learn to hope, but hope in the right way. Hope in Jesus, the person. I want to read just to conclude uh, one commentator's thought on this whole passage for you. It's in a kind of clunky English to read, so I'm going to have a hard time. You'll probably understand it better than me as I read it. It's quite a long quotation, just stick with me. Says this, and because of these things, because of his perfect exemption from human infirmity, because in him was no sin, he is manifested to take away our sins. He is born to take away our sins. Because in him there was goodness incapable of increase, being perfect from the beginning, therefore he is manifested to make us participants of his own unalterable and infinite goodness and purity. That's why he was born. Because no outward violence, no inward weakness could ever stay his course nor make him abandon his purpose. Therefore, his gospel looks upon the world with boundless hopefulness, with calm triumph, will not hear of there being an outcast or irreclaimable classes declares it to be blasphemy against God and Christ to say that any man or any nations are incapable of receiving the gospel and of being redeemed by it, and comes with supreme love and calm consciousness of the infinite power to you, my brothers and sisters, in your deepest darkness and your moods most removed from God and purity and ensures that, you, that it will heal you and raise all that in you is feeble to its own strength. Every man and woman may pray to that strong Christ who fails not nor is discouraged. So do you want to tap yourself into that man? The hope, the, the, the stud behind the drywall. Would you like to put your hope in that and not just the drywall, not just yourself? Because I think this might be a time for a lot of us, myself included, to consider what I've been hoping in and change it to a who I should hope in, right? Because it changes it from a chance at that hope coming coming to pass to an opportunity for it to. I have an opportunity to hope in it. It changes it from being a possibility of it coming to pass to basically a guarantee from God himself, the creator of, of everything. So that's what I want you to consider this Christmas time, this Advent season, is what have I hoped in? And where have I let it let me down? And have I blamed God when I hoped wrongly and it didn't come to pass? Come once again and hope in the one who we were meant to hope in in the the beginning. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to move into our time of communion this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for your words. Thank you for your prophets. We thank you for those who Put this book together so that we could know who it is we are meant to hope in. Lord, we're grateful to know that we can hope in you and that you can bear the weight of all that life throws at us. You are made to do that, and that's what you do gladly for those who love you. So Lord, I pray that we would notice those things in which we've hoped in that we need to shift, that we need to shift them back to you and once again put our hope back into you Jesus. We trust you. We thank you. We love you for all you've done for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. In a moment, as we prepare our hearts for